on May 16th, 1986, there was a, what should have been a very small conflict over the Indian Ocean in which a very well-known pilot at the time, Lieutenant Cortell, was sent out on a, what was supposed to be a very routine reconnaissance mission. Um, but while he was in the air, he had an encounter with a um, fighter pilot from a different country who was just kind of harassing him and messing with him. And it uh, shook him up really badly and to the point that when he returned to the carrier, he decided it was time to turn in his wings and, and call it quits and find a different career as he was thinking about his wife and kids and just how dangerous being a pilot in the Navy really was. Um, and one of the things that did is it, it kind of created a vacancy, right? Who was going to be the next hotshot pilot? And what ended up happening was two guys were sent in his place to a um, very elite level training um, event. And when that happened, those two guys incurred, encountered a lot, of, uh, a lot of insults and a lot of speculation over, look, you guys just kind of exploited this situation to your own gain. Um, and so those two guys, Maverick and Goose, ended up being like very famous fighter pilots. Um, if you're wondering why everyone else around you is laughing and you're under 35, I just basically gave the plot to Top Gun. And um, if you're under 25, Top Gun is a movie that your parents watched um, when, they were, when they were younger, and uh, there's a sequel coming out soon. But that, that does happen in real life, right? That, that situation where someone is um, in a very prominent position of influence or authority or fame or just at a high status level. Um, and then when that person fades due to age or retirement or death or any number of things, it can create an opportunity for someone else where others who maybe aren't as high up in that arena see that as a chance for them to, them to come in and them to that be their chance to, to shine and take advantage of that situation. And that's really similar to what we see happening in today's text and what Paul is addressing. So this morning we're going to do a quick overview of that, just what is happening. Then we're going to look at what we learn from these guys who try to take advantage of Paul's imprisonment um, in their efforts to gain authority and influence for themselves. And most importantly, we're going to look at how Paul responded to that in what's a very surprising way. Um, so just again, a quick overview of what's happening. I'm going to read verses 15 through 17 again in Philippians chapter 1. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. Um, so what was going on here? Well, what was happening was there were other ministers who were preaching a true gospel but with bad motives. Okay, that's the situation Paul is talking about here. One of the reasons we know they were actually preaching a true gospel is that Paul says he rejoices that the gospel was preached. So the actual message these guys were, these ministers were promoting and proclaiming was the right message. It was the right gospel. And we know that because Paul would never have rejoiced in some guys that were preaching or promoting a false version of the gospel. In fact, in Galatians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul says this, As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So these guys were preaching the right thing, but with the wrong motives. 
And then Paul responds to this by saying in a surprising way, not, hey, we should do away with those guys or curse be upon them or anything like that. But he says, hey, look, they're preaching the gospel, so in that I rejoice. Even if their motives are bad, even if they see themselves as enemies of me or people trying to compete with me, if they're preaching the gospel, I'm glad about that. So let's look first at Paul's enemies. And we see the idea here that Paul's enemies teach us the danger of envy and rivalry. He says, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Those are the two words he uses to describe these guys in their motivation. So let's work backwards and let's look at the rivalry first. This idea of rivalry means there was a, there was a spirit of competition um, and most likely what, what, what was happening here was because Paul was in prison, Paul had this very prolific, very well-known ministry, right? As an apostle, he was known not just in Philippi, but really all over the known world among Christianity, among the church. Everyone kind of knew who Paul was, right? That he was this authority figure. He had a lot of influence. He had a lot of clout, um, kind of like a regional apostle to the Gentiles, that if any of the Gentile churches didn't know what to do or had a question about something, they would probably defer to Paul. Let's see what Paul thinks about that. Man, Paul was kind of a hero. A lot of people looked up to him as this pioneer, this church parent, this guy who was really getting it done. And when he was in prison, some guys kind of saw there was a void there, and they had a chance to step in and further their own reputation. And you can see modern examples in this, even among the church and ministers, where people are seeking not the advance of the gospel, but through the gospel, seeking to build their own reputation, their own, flu- their own influence, and sometimes even money is tied to that as well. But we see this very competitive spirit to them. To them, this whole thing was a competition to who could do the best, who could perform the most, who could rack up the most points in terms of their spiritual resume and accomplishments. And it's really crazy when you think about it, right? Like, it's kind of a very sick way of thinking. Like, these guys were actually glad Paul was in prison. (laughs) Now, I don't know that before Paul was in prison, I can't say if they would have wish that upon him, but where most people would see Paul's imprisonment as like a tragedy or, you know, something they should maybe jump in and help with or a chance to serve, they saw an opportunity to advance their own influence in Paul's imprisonment, right? It's kind of a a sick way of thinking. And so it kind of ought to make us ask, how did they get there, right? I mean, you got to figure these guys didn't start that way. Most likely they were well-intentioned dudes who then fell into this trap of this competitive spirit, and it caused them to be in competition with Paul and see his failure as a good thing because he gave them an opportunity to shine and kind of fill that void that was left when Paul was in prison. How do you get to that point? And I think we find the answer in the other motivation that Paul lists, which is envy. And I was able to do a, a word search on this word envy that's used here. And that same Greek word is used to describe how the chief priests felt about Jesus when they were motivated to put him on trial to be crucified. They were envious. They didn't like the fact that he was getting the attention and the spotlight that they wanted and they felt like that they deserved. And it was envy that drove these guys to see Paul's imprisonment rather than a chance for them to go serve Paul, right? But instead to see Paul's imprisonment 
as an opportunity to advance their own influence and their own reputation. The book of Proverbs is a few verses where the writer speaks of how dangerous envy can be. And I'm going to read a verse before the verse that talks about envy because it kind of sets up the same thought pattern that the author uses to describe the danger of envy. So the first verse is this. He says this, A stone is heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's provocation is heavier than both. So you see the thought pattern there. He basically says, look, we've all, we've all carried a bag of sand or rocks, things that are really heavy, and that can, be, that can be burdensome, that can be difficult, that can wear you out and make you feel exhausted when you have to haul a bunch of sand or rocks or something that's just really heavy, that it just makes you worn out. But the company of a fool is even worse. That if you're in the company of someone who's a fool, that his provocation will wear you out worse than rocks and sand. In the same way, he goes on in 27.4 and says this, Wrath is cruel and anger is overwhelming, but who can stand before jealousy? We might say that if anger is a path to dangerous territory, that envy is a highway to the danger zone. If you know, you know. But really, imagine, we all know how dangerous wrath can be, right? Like, think about the wrath. I think of someone just seeing red and flying off the handle. And think of how many times you maybe or someone else has, in a moment of wrath and blind rage, said something or done something that was just irrevocably harmful, right? That in a moment of rage, you have the opportunity and the danger to just do something or, or, or say something that just causes an immense amount of harm and damage. And when it comes to anger, kind of a, usually the precursor to wrath, right? We all know how anger can spoil and infect relationships in a bad way, that if we have anger towards our spouse, our kids, our friends, that will eventually spill over and cause us to do and say things that will harm and destroy those relationships. But the writer of Proverbs saying, yeah, wrath and anger are dangerous, but jealousy even more so. We know that jealousy can cause us to twist, it can twist and warp our hearts in ways like nothing else can. And we'll consider the antidote to jealousy when we look at Paul. But before we go any further, I just want to stop and ask you to examine your own life for that. Because I think the reality is probably most, if not all of us, could point to something in our life today where we feel jealousy or envy towards someone else. And there's such a strong warning in Proverbs and in this story against jealousy and envy and what that can become how it can twist our hearts, what it can lead us to, that I think it's good to just stop for a second. So I'm going to ask you to do that and just think about who is a person or what is a thing that I am jealous of, that I'm envious of. And listen, by that I don't mean just someone has something that you also would like to have, right? Because that's, that's always going to be the case, right? That's inescapable in the sense that there's always going to be someone that has something, whether it's a job or a material thing or something that like, yeah, I wish I had that. I wish I was in that position. I wish I had the possession of that thing. I think envy is when it turns to the point of you begin to, to wish ill upon that person because they have it and you don't. 
that you, you no longer really want them to continue to succeed because you don't like how much further ahead they are of you. And I think that's why envy can twist our hearts so much is because when we see others that we perceive are ahead of us in a way that we feel like is maybe unfair, it makes us feel less than, doesn't it? Man, I guess maybe I'm just not as, as good as that person. Not as successful, not as motivated as he or she is. Or maybe I'm just not as lucky or haven't been given as good of a hand and we feel like our identity is wrapped up in who we are compared to that person. As the one commentator, Dennis Johnson, was reflecting on this, he said this, Do you need to be set free from the feverish quest to be best, to be first, or to achieve and gain recognition? Are you frustrated and bitter when it doesn't happen? Either because you aren't as great as you think you are, or because others fail to recognize your worth. Let me just stop right there and say, for me, it's always the second, okay? It's not that I'm not as great as I think I am, it's just that others tend to fail to recognize that. (laughs) But he goes on to say, only one person can set your heart free from the heavy burden of your own reputation. So keep that thing in mind, that person, that thing that you struggle with envy of, and Let's look at how Paul approached a situation where he could have and should have been very envious and chose not to be. So we're going to look at the idea that Paul's goals and sense of worth were in Christ. His goals, what he wanted to accomplish, who he wanted to be, and his own sense of personal worth and value were not in accomplishments or, or seen in relation to how he was performing compared to others, but they were found in Christ. We could say that Paul chose to rive above the envy and jealousy that we would expect him to feel in this situation, right? I mean, I think the way Paul writes this, it's like he understands people would expect him to be jealous in this situation, right? If you just read those three verses, like, as one chunk, you're going to see, like, Paul's expecting, like, hey, Paul's going to be upset about this. These guys are filling in that vacuum. And, and in fact, he goes on to, he says, Paul says, they're seeking to afflict me in what they're doing. That Paul thinks that they're doing things in a way that they're hoping Paul is going to be jealous and envious of them. I mean, if you were to ask Paul about these guys and if he was jealous, he wouldn't go, well, what do you mean? Why, why would I be jealous of that? Like, like he's just blind to the idea that he might feel jealous in that situation. No, he says, look, I know you would expect this, but look, I'm just glad that the gospel is being preached, and I'm going to choose to rejoice in that and not worry about who's gaining or losing reputation, influence, and clout in this situation. The same commentator said it this way, Paul is not a stoic. Stoic is someone who just tries to emotionally detach themselves from everything. He says, the source of his emotional equilibrium and adversity is not the stoic theory that taught adherents to steel themselves against life's disappointments through aloof indifference or emotional disengagement. No, Paul's source of joy is a person, the eternal Son of God. And guys, the reality is that there are If you've been in the church for a while, you may have seen this. There can be guys that in ministry that have a big platform that maybe you and I don't think should have that platform. 
that because of what we know about them and who they are that we kind of maybe resent or believe that they shouldn't be in that situation. That was, that was the case for Paul in this. Like Paul, just to be clear, Paul would probably not have appointed these guys to, to lead at a church, right? Paul wasn't a fan of these guys. But instead of being bitter and jealous about that, he chose to rejoice because they were preaching a true gospel. We can find situations like that today. John Calvin was in a situation like this, and when he wrote his commentary about this book, he actually talked about this this guy who he was not a big fan of, but how he chose to rejoice that the guy was preaching the gospel, um, even though he had some other things to say about him. So let's look at that just because it's kind of fun. He says, On hearing that the impure dog... (laughs) Careless, I don't know who careless was, but apparently this is what we know about him now, right, 500 years later, was scattering seeds of pure doctrine at Avington and elsewhere. We gave thanks to God because he had made use of that most profligate and worthless villain for his glory. (laughs) So, I know a guy that I want to kind of put in that category, but I would never call him a worthless dog or a profligate villain, right, mostly because I just don't use those words most of the time, but I would just never, you know, describe someone that way in most situations, but, but for real, like, I know I've run into guys like this a lot, but I know one particular person I can think of who, he's a guy, and I've, he's, I'm a, a friend of his, I've actually talked to him about this, but he preaches a true gospel, but he often spends a lot of time, like, seeking his own influence and trying to, um, post and say things that are kind of hidden brags about how, how many people he's led to Christ, or how many people were at the event he spoke at. And he's kind of, you can just tell there's a lot of motivation there to kind of climb this ladder of influence among Christian speakers. And, and reading this text for me was kind of a heart check of, well, what do I do when I see that guy posting stuff like that? Well, I've got, I've got a choice in that situation, right? Like, I can get frustrated about what I perceive as his motives, which at the end of the day, I don't, I don't know the guy's heart, right? A lot of that's conjecture. Um, or I could just be glad that people are hearing the gospel. Like that whatever this guy's motives are, he is out there and he's being asked to come to things. And he, I've heard him preach, he is preaching the true gospel, pointing people to Christ and him crucified. And that is a good thing. And I can choose to rejoice in that. And I recognize as I stand here that most of you listening to this probably don't struggle with envy in the context of vocational ministry, right? And that's probably some of this is just like, what are they talking about, right? But all of us know what it's like to be jealous, what it's like to be envious of someone in some sort of setting. And so I'm going to give us two questions to kind of help us wrestle through how to be more like Paul who just rejoiced in the right things and didn't get caught up in the comparison game. And the first one is this, is what do I want? Sounds very simple. It is very simple. But I would imagine that's kind of the question Paul had to have been asking himself, right? Like, hey, Paul, man, did you hear about these guys? They've kind of come in and they're probably even saying some negative things about you and um, they're, they're gaining this influence and people are looking to them now and say, are you worried about that? I wonder if Paul just stopped and goes, what do I really want here? Do I want my own reputation and my own name to be a big deal or do I want Jesus to be made much of? 
And as we ask ourselves that, we may get one of two answers, right? I mean, we may get the answer of, yeah, what I really want in this situation, whether it's at work or in a family or something like that, is for us to live and abide as brothers and sisters in Christ, for me to live in such a way that Jesus is exalted and for him to be made known. If that's what I really want, then whatever this influence or comparison or thing that I'm envious of, I can kind of set that aside because it really doesn't matter. Or it could be that we ask ourselves that and we say, no, I actually do care about that more than I care about the fame of Jesus. But just admitting that and being honest with ourselves puts us on a path to say, God, help me. Right? To say, God, help me not care so much about my reputation and help me to seek and care about the advancement of your gospel to all nations and care about that more than I do what people think about me. One way to do that on a practical level might be to get on the mailing list of the missionaries we've sent out from Cross Point Community Church. Just thinking about that, like how do we shift our focus on the advancement of God's kingdom and his reputation over and above ours, right? And I think one of the ways we can do that is to concern ourselves with the advancement of the gospel to places where it's not known. And so I just want to encourage you, just one way you could put this into practice today to kind of steer your own heart towards concern and care over the advancement of God's influence and God's reputation where he's not known, get on Jack and Haley's email list. If you don't know, Jack and Haley, they're a couple we sent um, to the Middle East as missionaries. And I'll tell you what, if you, if you like actually get on their email list and kind of start talking to them, they'll even tell you what city they're in and what country they're in. You get to get in on that inside information, learn about what they're doing, how they're serving, how they're advancing the gospel there, what their strategy is, who they're talking to, what sorts of meetings they're setting up, and what progress they're seeing. And you'll begin to, to care and have concern to take, like Paul did, take the focus off of yourself and your own influence and reputation and start caring and investing more in the reputation and advance of the gospel among all nations. The second question I think we can ask ourselves is this, where do I find my worth? Again, envy so often takes root because someone else has made us feel less than. You guys probably are aware of this, but for most people on a psychological level, fatherly approval is a really big deal, right? If you talk to someone who doesn't sense that they have the the love and the approval of their father, or maybe they don't know their father, but they don't, the idea that I have a father who knows me and is proud of me and approves of what I'm doing, if that element of our psychology is missing, it can do great damage to us. And on a spiritual level, if we will seek and embrace the approval of our heavenly father, we will be set free from envy. Paul is able to not concern himself with what other people think of him or how much approval he has in the eyes of that region and the people there and how much influence he has because at the end of the day, he knows he is walking and serving under the authority and the approval of his heavenly Father. And when he has that approval, he doesn't need anyone else's approval. Just like the approval of our earthly fathers is, gives us something that is not replaced fully by anything else The approval of our Heavenly Father does the same thing 
but even more so. And it can set us free from the envy we feel of others because our identity is not found in what they think of us or how we compare to them, but how our Heavenly Father sees us. We're going to, I feel like the whole time we're in Philippians, we're going to keep coming back to chapter 2, verses 3 through 8. And we talked about in the intro that that, that chunk of Philippians is kind of like the hub of the book, and everything else we are just kind of spokes that come out from that hub. So we're going to come to that time and time again because it's this the center point theologically of this book and Paul's motivation for writing it. And everything he's saying is kind of centered there. Um, so we're going to look at it this morning. So if you'll just look over a little bit in Philippians chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says this, Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. So Paul is not seeking his own ambition to advance his own agenda because he understands with the embrace of his heavenly Father that God's approval of him is not based on his accomplishments or him surpassing someone else as if it's a competition in his ministry and what he's accomplished, right? That he knows God's approval is not based on that, but what God wants, the manner in which God wants Paul to walk in is that of humility and that of serving. And what we will often find when we are envious of others, if, if we were to turn it around and ask ourselves, hey, how do I, what does it look like for me to love and serve that person? Not seeking my own agenda and my own fame and my own accomplishments or influence or clout, but what would God have me do? He would have me ask, how do I come low and serve and love that person? And when we do that, we no longer feel less than because we know that God is approving of the way and the manner in which we are walking and living. In verse 4, he goes on and says, Let each of you not look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. And then verses 5 through 8, this text that is probably some sort of creed that folks would have had memorized back then, he points us to Jesus as the example of this, that it is the, the character and life of Jesus that serves as this perfect example of what it looks like to commit our lives to loving and serving others that would free us from any envy or jealousy. Verse 5, have this mind among yourselves. Right? Instead of worrying about, that's what Paul's telling himself, instead of worrying about influence, who has more, who's doing more, right? who's got the clout, I'm going to have this mind among myself, which is yours in Christ, who though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. Right, Paul as an apostle could have thought that his reputation and his influence and his authority would have been a thing to be grasped and held on to. But he looks to Jesus who did not count his own authority and position with God a thing to be grasped, but descended and became man, humbling himself. Verse 7, but he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. There were times in, in Jesus' life when he was 
confronted with the possibility of seeking his own glory and agenda. Before he began his ministry, Satan tempted him, set him up on a high place and said, Behold, all the kingdoms of the world will be yours. I will give them to you. Jesus basically sloughs him off because he's not seeking his own agenda, but he's seeking to be obedient and the approval of his father. When he's on trial, he's told, because he seems to be dismissing and not saying much, he's told, hey man, look, don't you know that I have the authority to release or crucify you? And what does Jesus say? Hey bro, he doesn't say hey bro, but I feel like he would have today. Man, you would have no authority at all if it weren't given to you by my Father in heaven. <laughs> so Jesus recognizes that any, no matter how great someone authority is on earth, it, it's a small, tiny thing, and only, they only have that authority or that sense of approval or disapproval because it was given to them by his Father in heaven. And when we see that big of a view of God and value his approval on our lives over the approval of man, it sets us free from envy and jealousy. Paul, like us, needed to recognize his value was in Jesus, not because of his accomplishments or what he brought to the table or what he could do or how much influence he could have, but his value was in the fact that the God of heaven looked upon Paul and others and said, you know what, I, I value him enough that in order to redeem my relationship with him, I'm going to send my son to die in his place and take the penalty for his sins that I might be reconciled to him and enjoy fellowship and communion with that person. And when we recognize that is what God has said about us and done for us in the person of Jesus, we can walk and minister in a security and confidence that alleviates us from the pressure to perform against others. And that's true in ministry, and it's true in life as well that when we embrace the approval of God through what Jesus has done, it can set us free from these vices of envy that threaten to twist and warp our hearts in ways that will lead us away from God. Let's pray. God, I pray that we would ask ourselves these questions when we encounter envy, when we encounter jealousy in our hearts. Pray that you would help us to zoom out and just consider what we really want in life. Is what we really want to surpass or be better than that person or that possession? Or is what we want to be found in you and walking in a manner that we know you approve of? And God, I pray that in that we would find our identity in you and we would keep coming back to you to form our understanding of who we are and the value we have in your eyes and that that would set us free from seeking and being dependent on the approval of others. And I pray in Christ's name, amen.